Welcome to Ars Technica Live. Every month, we bring you an informal conversation with a thinker from the frontier of technology, science, and culture. There's only one rule, no sound bites. We record each episode before a live audience at Longitude, Oakland, California's premier tiki bar. I'm your host, Annalee Newitz. I'm Ars Technica's tech culture editor. My co-host is Tiffany Kelly, Ars Technica contributor. We're interviewing Hanu Raja Niemi, a fantastic science fiction writer who tells us about his double life as a scientist and a science fiction writer and how he makes them work together as an entrepreneur in Silicon Valley. One of the reasons I really wanted him to come here was because he really represents this fantastic bridge between the worlds of science, technology, and science fiction. Tell us the story of your kind of journey as both a scientist and a science fiction writer. How did that happen? How did you end up doing both kind of at the same time? When I was about six or seven years old, my local school library in my hometown in uh, Ulivieska, a, a town of about 10,000 people slightly north of the middle of Finland, I found a very old copy of uh, 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea. And it was kind of a kind of a special moment. There was this book which featured this amazing journey into a completely different world made possible by sort of human ingenuity and, and, and technology. And I decided I absolutely wanted to build my own submarine or, or spaceship or sort of anything like that. Sort of about a year after I read the book, I actually wrote to European Space Agency with a proposal for a fusion-powered spaceship to go to Jupiter. And um, how old were you when that happened? Uh, so eight, I think. Okay, good start. Uh, eight, it's eight a very good old. start. <laughs> uh, and they wrote back. They, they wrote back, sort of apologizing that at that point they were not pursuing research into fusion-powered propulsion, but, you know, would keep my proposal in mind for the future. 25 years, 22 years later, I actually ended up doing some work for the European Space Agency and, and, and sort of visiting ESTEC at uh, Nordweg in, in Netherlands and doing work on their uh, propulsion systems. So, But that, that came later. So one obvious requirement for building a vehicle of any kind was a power source. So, so Captain Nemo, I think, used these very special batteries that were powered by seawater. So, so I, I needed to, to get a power source for whatever I wanted to, to build. So obviously that had to involve atomic energy of some kind. So, so I realized that I had to study physics. And studying physics required studying mathematics. And sort of along the way, something that I realized was that actually I kind of got a lot of the same sense of wonder from physics and mathematics themselves as I got from, from reading Jules Verne. So kind of from the start, the two things things were pretty intertwined. Another very important thing that came soon after was role-playing games. So when I was about, I think, uh, 9 or 10, with a couple of friends, I discovered tabletop role-playing. That was actually just arriving in, in Finland around that time. So we started with RuneQuest and then moved on to D&D and, and other games. I think we tried pretty much every single tabletop RPG that was in existence in the, in the sort of late 80s, early early 90s, all the way down to really obscure games like Dream Park, which was based on this series of books by Larry Niven and Steve Barnes, which is actually about role-playing games in the future. A little bit later, I also got involved in, in LARPing. I should say that in, in Finland and in the, in the other Nordic countries, LARPing is quite a, an advanced subculture. It, it sort of goes beyond what you would see in, in, in films like Knights of Badassdom, it's actually a bit of an art form and actually has quite a lot of arts funding. I've been in some really large-scale publicly funded LARPs that have involved taking an entire cruise ship 
sailing between Sweden and Finland and turning it into a space station. It's could have completed with its own sort of internal network and communication systems. And a friend of mine was also in a game that took place on an old decommissioned Soviet submarine. Very strong experience with trying to imagine what it feels like to be someone else and do it together with, with other people and sort of create strong emotional experiences through through narrative and, and, and play. Annalie was talking about how you had some crazy LARPing story that involves kidnapping. <laughs> Can you tell us about that? Absolutely. So one of the most memorable games I've ever participated in was a Cthulhu LARP, although I didn't know, know it was a Cthulhu LARP. A, a friend of mine, sort of a prominent LARP organizer in Finland, asked me, sent me an email one day and said, are you available this weekend? And, uh, and I was, so I said yes. And I was sent a character description, which was, I'm an eight-year-old boy going to a summer camp. And it was a very sparse description. R- roughly, that, that was pretty much, pretty much it. And I was just told to show up at this, this certain, certain location. And so I did, and a car drove up. Two guys got out of the car, put a bag over my head. <laughs> and off we went. This was kind of in the magic circle of LARPing. So I assumed this was actually part of the game and not, not just some sort of <laughs> Russian mafia doing, doing their thing. But so then after the bag was removed, I mean, some, uh, I, I was told that, you know, whenever the bag is removed, we're in game and it's, it goes from there. So I found myself in this room with three or four other people. At this point, I am an eight-year-old boy in a summer camp. Uh, so I was a bit surprised to discover myself in a room with a Viking, <laughs> a guy or a guy who, who thought he was a Viking and, and a bunch of other interesting personalities. And we were locked in there. We, we, couldn't actually, we couldn't actually get out. But eventually nurses showed up. And at that point, at the meta level, we sort of realized that we were in an insane asylum. And, and my character wasn't actually an eight-year-old boy, but which was kind of slowly revealed. But th- So this game took place over a weekend, organized by these medical students who had access to all kinds of very scary-looking medical equipment and sort of knew how nurses in these kinds of environments behaved. And so our movements were very restricted, and you kind of got this experience of what it actually feels like to be in an institution where your decision-making and autonomy is is impaired. They also really messed with our sense of time. So so there were artificial night periods when the lights would be out for a couple of hours and we have to at least theoretically stay in bed, although although we had the possibility at one point to sneak out. So and it turned out to be a Cthulhu LARP. So this was an insane asylum where the sort of head doctor was was conducting experiments and summoning sort of uh, great old ones and, and sacrificing people <laughs> to them. And uh, there was a there was a really scary guy who played this insane Russian mystic who who was just sort of with these burning Rasputin like eyes. And the weather kind of played along as well. Like at at, at one point we were able to sneak out of our room and. It, it was raining really heavily and we snuck around a corner and just saw this guy standing at a window sort of rain falling down staring at us so slowly smoking a cigarette and it was I, I mean it's it's sort of hard to translate these experiences into words but it was it, it was pretty powerful that sounds amazing <laughs> kind of the science part of things eventually sort of via via cambridge in the uk took me to to edinburgh to do my phd and i kind of then lost touch with all this all this sort of uh, community of uh, LARPers and role players and, I've, and I tried to fill it with something so I ended up joining this group uh, stumbling through a lot of uh, sort of very 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 bad short stories that they were kind enough to to critique and give feedback on and started to then then get a couple of things things published and uh, sort of eventually then ended up writing novels and this kind of took place in parallel with doing a PhD and and then starting a company that sort of worked on solving mathematical problems for industry and and sort of government organizations like European Space Agency and UK Ministry of Defense and 
and uh, and other things like that. So that's kind of kind of I guess my origin story. What would you say had a bigger impact on your science fiction work? The gaming that you did or reading all these science fiction authors when you were a kid? And I think in terms of learning about world building and character creation, the gaming probably had bigger impact, but maybe the ideas and the sort of obsessions, maybe the reading was more important, partially because of the selection that was available in my local library. I ended up reading quite a lot of old stuff early on before I sort of moved into modern science fiction. So Jules Verne, I mean, immediately after 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea, I read every single Jules Verne book and, and also H.G. Wells, which was sort of a natural jumping point. And another hurdle I had was that before I could really read modern science fiction, I had to be able to read it in English because not that much much was uh, translated into Finnish. So, so that also delayed. I know that throughout your career, you've worked at different companies and consultancies where you're dealing with technology and science. And how does that feed into your science fiction? Do you find that you're getting ideas from science fiction that you want to create in reality? Is it more synergistic where the ideas are kind of feeding into each other? How does how does that work for you? In the context of actual entrepreneurship and consultancy, often the problems you work on are sort of externally imposed, but actually artificial constraints are also good for, for sort of creation on the, on the fictional side. So so that does feed feed into it. So certain themes certainly do emerge and it does help to be be exposed to to a lot of different real life uh, fields of science and technology, whether it's space or sort of drone warfare and autonomous decision making and machine learning or or sort of even more mundane things like we, we had clients like from the uh, the oil and gas sector. But that also gives you an appreciation of how complex systems you have in oil reservoirs, what sort of tools have to be developed to, to model them and so on. So they do definitely feed into each other you get get a toolbox of ideas to play with one of the things I was really fascinated with at one point which sort of made it uh, made its way to the quantum thief books was quantum entanglement what really makes quantum mechanics different from classical physics is entanglement which means that systems that interact and then are separated and perhaps sent to opposite ends of the universe or sort of no possible causal connection between them still somehow remain part of the same system and and sort of making measurements on one of them will sort of lead to correlated measurements in the other part of the system which in a way which is not classically possible. It turns out that there's this whole field of quantum game theory which tries to make this very explicit. So there are there are certain games which cannot be classically won but can be won in the quantum realm and they typically involve coordination between two agents. So so we have two players who actually prisoner's dilemma is one example. So so if you have two prisoners who who classically cannot coordinate their their actions to get maximum outcome, which one of them talks or defects gives gives up the other. There is always classically an incentive to do that even if it's actually the suboptimal outcome. But in the quantum realm you can actually get around that by allowing them to have this sort of quantum telepathy link. So in the Quantum Thief books there's a futuristic society called the Zoku who are entirely based around this kind of idea of quantum telepathy empowered communism. They're, they're all entangled. They don't have to form agreements explicitly or to communicate but their their actions end up being being coordinated. Around the same time as I was working on the, the first Quantum Thief novel, my previous company Think Tank Maths was working for a sort of a DARPA-like UK Ministry of Defense group and the program manager actually read the book and then we started talking about could some modest version of this be implemented in real life and we ended up doing a 12-month research project on could you use quantum entanglement to coordinate drones in real life and it actually turned out that you could. Wow. So are they still are they using those drones at all? Or The actual technology needed to implement this is probably still a couple of decades away, but we showed theoretically and through simulations that if you had sufficiently good quantum memory, you could actually uh, achieve these kinds of telepathy-like effects. 
I know that you came to the Bay Area to start an entrepreneurial venture, Helix Nano, which I know is somewhat under wraps, so you can't tell us everything about it. But I'm curious if you see starting a new business venture as being something like doing a science fiction novel. You're having to speculate about what will appeal to people. You're having to build something that's hopefully going to you know, catch on with more than just yourself. So with high-tech enterprise, and you want to be at the convergence of very strong accelerating trends. I think another similarity is actually that one good guideline or heuristic in science fiction is, is that, uh, or speculative fiction, is that you are allowed one miracle, <laughs> right? So you are allowed one impossible thing. And actually, in entrepreneurship, it's often the same thing. You, to, a successful venture is allowed one miracle. Two miracles is too hard. You sort of, and you actually have great examples of this in Bay Area companies where you have a company like Airbnb who had the one miracle that actually people will allow strangers to come and stay in their home. That's kind of a user behavior miracle. And then there's others like, I guess, Google, who have the one technological miracle of, of sort of trying to enable enable search. And can you give us like a log line for what Helix Nano is going to be as a company? Yeah. We're trying to be a synthetic biology company addressing human health. Unfortunately, can't explicitly tell you what we're doing, but I can't tell you what the miracle is. That's, that's very much what we're <laughs> working on. But there's a few trends that we are trying to leverage. So one of those is DNA sequencing. One of the most as astonishing technological developments of the last 20 years or so has been our ability to read DNA and also to write DNA. But the reading ability is particularly striking. So to make it really concrete, back when the Human Genome Project started or, or, or finished, the cost to sequence one human genome, so three billion base pairs of DNA, was roughly equivalent to like a room full of gold. 100 million base pairs, pairs room full of gold, actually the whole human genome, a lot more. Now 100 million base pairs is like aluminum wrapper of a hot dog. So it's really actually been hyper exponential. It's been faster than Moore's law. And I think very soon we're going to be in a situation where, where everybody's going to be sequenced. Uh, and not only once, but actually our microbiomes are going to be yeah. sequenced in, in, at regular intervals. What it does give us the ability to do is to understand biology at a level, or at least gather the data that may allow us to understand biology at an unprecedented level. And then the other side of that is that we are also getting pretty good at making DNA. So we can also, now that we can read DNA, we, we can make synthetic DNA and get our bodies, get cells to carry out functions that we've programmed using that DNA. A great book I read recently called The Dead Hand, which is about the bioweapons programs in Soviet Russia. They had a project where they were able to engineer a really, 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 really scary pathogen. This pathogen that they made first gives you fever and, and like influenza-like symptoms. And that's actually already quite bad. It can kill you. But then once you think you're recovered, the pathogen sort of triggers a second wave, which gives you an autoimmune disease that paralyzes you. They did this with being able to synthesize 40 base pairs of DNA. So that's very, again, compared to sort of the 3 billion base pairs that we have, that's pretty small. And synthesizing those 40 base pairs of DNA was a very, very long, painstaking process that took them like this, the, the, all the resources of, of like a 2,000 person research facility. My colleague at Helix Nano ordered some DNA constructs last week for about $50 that were about 2,000 base pairs each. So we just have to hope <laughs> that you're not engineering the virus that will no, destroy us no, all. No, actually, actually, it's more to protecting us from those kinds of things. But Excellent. Yeah. So we are using our powers for good. You know, looking ahead, are there any sort of scientific concepts or technologies that you're excited to see in, you know, future science fiction novels or that maybe you're 
have an idea for yourself. The sort of elevator pitch is a dark biotech startup where these people are semi-autobiographical, defi- <laughs> but definitely using their powers for evil in interesting interesting ways. Yeah, I mean, I, I think there's sort of an infinite variety of ideas you can throw at science fiction. I mean, I think complex systems and sort of cities and like large systems. I think science fiction has kind of done physics to death. I mean, maybe, maybe not quite, but uh, there's there's an awful lot of other sciences that we could draw upon. How complex systems sort of connect at multiple levels, ranging some, from sort of climate to, to cities to human societies. And I mean, there are, of course, authors who, who do that, like uh, Kim Stanley Robinson comes to mind, but would like to see more of that. Yeah, weirdly, Jurassic Park is kind of about a complex system, especially the novel, mm. which is, I mean, you know, people are not accustomed to thinking of Michael Crichton as like a, a good, a great thinker, but he actually does deal with the idea that an amusement park is itself a complex system and it has these vulnerabilities that nobody plans for. With fiction you kind of always then end up introducing some sort of disaster or chaos theory as, as in Jurassic Park where the butterfly flaps its wings and tyr- tyr- tyrannosaurs are loosed upon the world. Actually Ray Bradbury did that yeah, that's as Ray well. Yeah, Bradbury, yeah. Literally, the, the sort of sound of thunder. Uh, yeah. More and more examples of sort of big complex system breakdowns, especially in the financial system, obviously yeah. in 2008, but even on sort of shorter timescales like the famous flash crash of 2008 2012, where, where sort of you have these high-frequency trading bots going crazy into the getting trapped into these feedback loops that feed into each other, and I also at some point want to write a book about cities. I, I do find cities very, 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 very interesting as it's kind of a strange prosthesis. I think it was Warren Ellis who said that the city is a battlesuit for surviving the future, but, yeah. but it's, uh, I think it's even more than that. It's kind of this coral shell that we inhabit or, or sort of a network. Uh, I'm curious, in your interest in, in writing a book about cities or large complex systems, a city being made up of hundreds of thousands or millions of humans is sort of greater than any one human can comprehend. So how do you construct a narrative about something that is inherently greater than a single individual is supposed to be able to think? Science fiction involving either alien creatures or, or sort of transhuman minds or sort of things that are, that are smarter than us. And the answer is always cheating. <laughs> Because we can sort of play this game of smoke and mirrors with the reader and create an impression of a greater intelligence than is actually there. I guess the interesting thing to explore would be what is it like to be a small part of that greater thing that you don't understand? What sort of conflicts are created between your own identity and membership to this bigger collective and so on? And to what extent can a group of individuals hack this bigger system? An example I would point to is Olaf Stapledon's The Star Maker that gives you a pretty good impression of what it's like to be an entire universe. So he goes way beyond just cities with that. But authors like Carl Schrader's with uh, Lockstep and Alistair Reynolds try and work within known physics. So when you're thinking of your company or you're thinking of stories, what hard limits do you see stopping like everything being gonzo? There is a limit to the sky, right? There's the speed of light, there is the dark energy pushing the universe farther apart with time, things like that. And then quantum only goes so small. How do you choose your constraints? And what what sort of constraints do you set yourself? And I think it's a tricky question to identify what are the interesting constraints. So hard science fiction takes the approach that, okay, we're going to limit ourselves to what we know or what we think we know, and then maybe allow the one miracle pushing to the future and then very rigorously work out the implications implications of that. Sure, interesting stories about uh, galactic empires can be told even sticking to the speed of light limit, as you say. I mean, people like Alistair have uh, done great things with it. I think it's all about what constraints 
will generate interesting stories. With, with the Quantum Thief, the example I, I sort of experienced personally was trying to tell a detective story in the far future was an interesting constraint because it sort of forced you to think about this contradiction that in the future everything might be recorded, everything might be observed constantly using ubiquitous sensing and computing. So how do you tell a detective story in that setting? And the answer was to try to have a society which respects privacy more than it's, it sort of respects uh, the idea of solving crimes. So I think maybe one heuristic is, can you find some interesting contradiction with your constraints? My question was, you've name-checked a whole bunch of awesome authors that I'm a big fan of, but I'd really like to know what you're reading and watching right now, basically. That's oh, a, a great question. I was just on holiday and I read Joe Hill's The Fireman, which I very, very, very much enjoyed. He's managed to keep it secret incredibly well that he's Stephen King's son, <laughs> but he's definitely a very worthy author in his own right. I really enjoyed it. I've been reading quite a lot of nonfiction. I read a brilliant book called The Emperor of All Maladies by Siddhartha Mukherjee which is a very beautifully written history of cancer and our understanding of cancer sort of it's very much in style of Richard Rhodes and the making of the atomic bomb in the sense that it sort of uses a lot of fictional techniques in uncovering real historical events and, and characters. Actually, I'm reading a whole bunch of, for the reasons of the book I'm working on right now, I'm reading a combination of Jorge Luis Borges and John le Carré. <laughs> so some classics, trying to remix those a little bit. What about TV shows and movies? I really enjoyed Mr. Robot, looking kind of forward to what happens in, in this season. I mean, Game of Thrones is kind of an kind of an obvious one. One really underrated show, or sort of not, not maybe so commonly, recognized show that I really enjoyed was Person of Interest. Speaking of Love super super AIs, I mean, that, that was actually, I, I think, one of the best sort of fictional depictions of AIs that I've seen in a long, long time. So, What tropes in science fiction bug you? I guess I try not to read bad science fiction anymore. <laughs> the sort of characteristic of the bad science fiction is the breaking of the suspension of disbelief when you sort of don't feel the world is internally consistent. Just bad writing would have been Ernst Klein's Armada. It was very sad because I really massively enjoyed Ready Player One. But yeah, somehow somehow that, that sort of managed to recycle an awful lot of cliches to self-aware and tongue-in-cheek and just making self-referential allusions to popular culture to the point where there was actually little substance behind it. So that was sort of sort of one one example recently. But yeah, on the whole I try not to read bad science fiction. <laughs> Thank you so much. This is Hanu Rajamiami people.